Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. all our listeners today. I know we had a break last week given the uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, glad to have you on and I, I can't thank you guys enough. Now more than ever, I know we've been doing these calls since March. I think our first date was uh, March 16th, if I'm not mistaken. But and every call I've always felt is important, but this call today uh, probably the most important that we, one that we've had to date. And a lot of it has to do with Reemphasizing a variety of measures to help stop the pandemic. I always like to make that point as virus can only spread if we allow it to spread. If we stop spreading it, it goes away. We end this. And who can do that? You all, our amazing listeners. I, I agree with Kimberly when she called you all amazing. Heartfelt, you guys are my, you guys are our, our front line out there. What I'm going to do today after our number update is I'm going to give you just a brief insight into what has been going on in the intensive care unit to date, um, especially this week while I've been there. And then we're going to turn it over to, as Kimberly said, uh, a myth-busting, but definitely trying to answer a variety of questions many of you have been emailing us. This is highly important, and we really want to be able to get to these questions and give you all the peace of mind of what's happening and what's going on, especially as we wrap up the conversation for these hygienic interventions, supplemented, with recognizing there is a, and there's a light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccine. So first things first, where are we to date with the numbers? And I know COVID-19 has been the media attention grabbing headline for the last several weeks, and rightly so. Um, so let's go over these numbers right now. Globally, in the world, we have 55,769,754 cases, deaths, we have 1,516,123, giving us a mortality rate of 3%. Here in the U.S., we have seen an, a massive exponential growth in COVID-19. We are at 14,561,668 cases. Deaths are at 283,224, giving us a mortality rate of 1.9%. And here in the state of Maryland, 209,191 cases, with deaths at 4,630, giving us a mortality rate of 2.2%. There's three things I want to discuss that are so evident this week while I've been here in the intensive care units managing patients only with COVID-19. There's three stories I want to emphasize that shed light into what is happening uh, here in Baltimore, uh, here in the state of America, and worldwide. First story is of a patient that came to us uh, Wednesday. This patient, the reason why I'm emphasizing this patient's story, is this patient had to travel four hours to get to us. The rural area where this patient began the journey was in a local hospital where they didn't have a critical care Staff. They've been depleted. Unfortunately, the hospital was full, and the patient had to wait in the ED 
for up to 12 hours before a hospital would accept the patient. They put out a call to five hospitals. We were the fifth, and we accepted the patient. The reason why we were the fifth is geographically we were four hours away. See this because this patient's story emphasizes why we are you know, trying to emphasize these hygienic interventions to mitigate the spread of the virus. A lot of patients are going to be showing up in hospitals that are full. Neighboring hospitals are full. And worse outcomes will happen if patient's care is good. Um, I, I don't have a great ending to that patient's story, but it really emphasizes what we are all struggling and seeing in real time, especially our friends and neighbors in more rural areas of the United States. Another story is really one of all, almost all of our patients here in the ICU. And it, it goes along with that mortality rate here in the U.S. where it fell under 2%, 1.9%, even though the numbers really grew. And I want to be cautious of how to interpret these instruments. The average length of stay in the ICU at Hopkins and one of the units that I run is 22 days. Meaning when patients come in and they get sick after about a week, they remain in this kind of purgatory for quite some time until they ultimately declare themselves one direction or another. We've had patients pass away on their 30th day. We've had patients pull through on their 50th day of life-supported interventions. So this is why we're all bracing for a very tough winter because the cases we have now, just like the spring, these cases are likely to be sick for quite some time. So we are all holding our breath, hoping these patients can turn around. But I want to be cautious about that exponential increase of cases and how many of those resulted in hospitalizations. We are going to see an increase likely of mortality over time. Uh, just given right now, it doesn't happen immediately. These patients, unfortunately, remain in a bit of a purgatory until one way or the other they'll declare whether they survive or live. And the third story, one that I touched base with Kimberly earlier this morning, and one that we are hoping to have Reverend Paula Teague and her amazing team join us in the next, maybe next week or in, the, in definitely within one or two weeks. I'm not trying to, Paula's listening to this uh, moment. I don't want to make her have to prepare for next week, but definitely something that is needed. One, uh, one of the things I love about my colleagues is that we recognize that the humanity of medicine is really best planned for before someone even enters the hospital. So this third story is about who will speak for you when you can't speak for yourself. You often talk about events directives, identifying someone who, when you have lost capacity, when you don't, um, aren't able anymore to speak for yourself, someone else can go ahead and speak for you. Now, the challenge with that notion in a time of COVID I'm tell you about this patient. This patient began to lose capacity to make decisions. And so we call the, the, the loved one who lived with that patient, only to find out that, that loved one was also hospitalized with COVID. And so we called another loved one, right, of a third in demand. Still no luck. That patient also hospitalized with COVID. So my patient, the two loved ones that were identified as surrogates, all lived in the same household, all had COVID, all were hospitalized in different hospitals throughout the state. 
We end up calling a fourth relative, going down the line and getting some other numbers. They haven't seen this loved one in over a decade. And so they felt uncomfortable making decisions. So I say this to you all. As you are practicing hygienic interventions to mitigate the spread of this virus with physical distancing and face masking, of course, and hygiene, please, you know, regardless of your age, whether you're a young 20-year-old listening to our call or a young 80-year-old listening to our call, talk about with your loved ones, not, and definitely more than just those who live in the household. And I say this because in COVID, if you have it, others in your household likely will have it. And they're probably the ones that you've identified that probably know you best. But keep in mind, they too may become hospitalized with COVID. And suddenly, who will speak for you all becomes a bigger question. So this is a time where you talk to neighbors or loved ones who don't live with you, reignite these conversations and say, if they have to call you from the hospital because I and my husband or I and my daughters and so forth are hospitalized, please know this is what I would want. Every physician, every nurse wants to preserve the dignity of all of our patients. We want to do what you would want us to do at a time when you lack capacity. And that's, that's always our priority. But when we don't know what you would have wanted, not written down, there isn't a surrogate to speak for you, you know, we shy on preserving life. And so uh, that might seem like the right thing to do. For some, it's not what they have wanted. So I plead with you all, talk to your loved ones, write it in down if you'd like as well. So if you show up to the hospital, you can hand it in writing. But we are all here for you all. So with that said, let me stop here. Those were my three stories that I wanted to share. And I'm excited for this call today because you listeners, right, Kimberly hit the nail on the head when she called you all amazing. The amount of questions we've been getting and so forth. Clearly, we took a break for a holiday, but we probably should have kept rocking and rolling. So, Kimberly, those are my updates with numbers. Those are my updates from the front line in the ICU, recognizing it's a long stay if you get ill, recognizing that hospitals are getting full throughout this nation, and recognizing the need to talk to the loved ones, especially out of your home, so you can talk to them about what you would want if you lose capacity and others in your household aren't able to weigh in. So, Kimberly, my friend, I turn it over to you. Hopefully, everything I've been saying has been clear. Speaking through a face mask, so I apologize, but over to you, my friend. Thank you, Dr. G. And yes, you've been very clear. And uh, thank you for sharing those stories. And as you always, I hear you say the best way to um, care for someone with COVID is just not to get it. So, thank you for sharing that. And I, I hope that we can um, share some information just to remind people about the importance of advanced care planning. Um, within the next few days. So again, thank you for submitting all of your questions. We've gotten many of them, and uh, please keep them coming, and we will do our best to address them all during this time. And if we do not um, able to get to them, we will certainly respond with a response in the near future. A lot of them have to do with the vaccine, um, so I'm going to save those for the, the second part. So for a few miscellaneous questions. So the first one. Is COVID too real, or is it the same as the old gout? Right. So the kind of uh, COVID toe and everything else that can happen to uh, joints and so forth, even though there's inflammation there, it's usually different reasons for it. So gout has different reasons and oftentimes comes from a dietary intake, right? Gout used to be called 
the king's disease because it, uh, a diet high in fat, especially high in meats, makes uh, an excess amount of crystals that get deposited in all of your joints. The big toe a big culprit just because of the arthritis that happens there uh, with wear and tear. So different reasons for gout. Kubito, different reason again. It has a lot to do with how the body is responding, using our immune cells to attack the virus, oftentimes results in particles, kind of like the ashes of the fight. Those ashes tend to kind of accumulate in the joints and so forth, or even in the skin, causing some darkness and purpling and so forth. So COVID-19 toe, different etiology, a different cause. So does it hurt though? Oh, it does. Every patient tells me that pretty, pretty uh, easily. It, it hurts. Um, but different uh, causes, uh, different treatments for it as well. So hopefully that uh, answered your question, Kimberly. Oh, Kimberly, are you there? Sorry, the mute button got me this time. Oh, yes. Kimberly, what a rookie mistake. Our <laughs> listeners know. are probably, I get, I get fan mail about how good you are on the, these calls, Kimberly. Oh, all right, I, all right, I we'll know. let well, that slide. I, I had to blend in, so I, I there you go. yeah. <laughs> so the next one, how safe would it be for church members to go throughout the community from house to house to be caroling and praying for people? So great question. Actually, I was uh, recently interviewed by CNBC asking just that. Like, uh, well, asking specifically, what holiday things can we do safely and what could we not consider doing safely? So I would say going from house to house, staying outdoors, wearing your face mask, and staying a minimum of six feet apart, a minimum of six feet apart, to provide prayer, you know, and, and I'm making an assumption that prayer is speaking at a normal tone, right? not yelling, not screaming, not singing. That should be okay. That should be fine. That should be okay. Caroling is a different conversation. I say this because caroling, being singing, causes us to really put out our voices, right? The trajectory from, uh, uh, from the singing carries a lot more further than simple talking. And we know that even just acoustically. If someone talks in a low volume and they're 20 feet away, you can't hear them. But if you're singing 20 feet away, I can still probably hear you. So that uh, singing usually causes particles to go further. So a couple of things for caroling. One, if you wish to do it, 20 feet apart. Right? Try to stay as far as possible. Uh, that would be reasonable. But two, who you go with is also important, right? If you know these individuals, if you know they've been quarantining um, just to lead up to caroling, right, so they're safe, or you have engaged with them, right? They live in your household. So anytime you want to do activities with others, always take into account what have they been up to, what have they been doing, have they been quarantining, making sure that they are safe. Because caroling doesn't... If you're 20 feet apart wearing a face mask and they're, you know, they're in their home listening, don't think the person in the house is going to catch anything. My bigger concern are the carolers themselves with one another and hopefully not spreading COVID to one another. So I do think caroling can be done in a safe way. It just takes a little bit of extra planning. I think prayer 
uh, can be beautiful, uh, can be done safely, usually just because it doesn't involve, um, it involves just normal speaking, uh, again, making an assumption. So I think both of those activities in the holiday season can be done safely. You just need to do good planning ahead of time. I, we did speak with a church earlier this week where those who are going to Carol um, end up living uh, one another, husband and wife, so they, you know, they'll quarantine themselves, and then they'll go out and uh, care for the community. So I thought that was great. Uh, they're, they are able to kind of block off the neighborhood and sing in the streets so all homes can kind of hear them and see them. So I do think it is doable. Maybe it's even a moment to invest in kind of a portable microphone uh, that can play the music a little bit louder, but that way you don't have to sing so loudly um, where you're just potentially uh, causing a, a bigger trajectory of those particles that could probably go further if there is any COVID in them. So that's, that's my answer, Kimberly. I think it can still be done. Just take some planning. And for our listeners out there, feel free to email us, you know, what your thoughts are, and we'll run it by, and we'll let you know if we think it's good and safe, uh, or maybe we can offer a suggestion here or two. So definitely to our listeners, email us if you plan to do any of these activities, and we're happy to provide you some guidance. Thank you. So the next one um, is related, and we've got a number of questions related to this. Um, talking about um, Christmas Eve uh, church services, and um, it's very frustrating to decide whether or not to do in-person worship. Gathering restrictions are 10 or less, but um, in places of worship, uh, worship there's an exception. Um, can you share your thoughts on having Christmas Eve services and whether they should be in person or continue to be held virtually. So, right. So I, um, I definitely think it's worth uh, pointing out a, a variety of things. Uh, so I do think Christmas worship services should happen. Now, how they happen, that's the part we'll, we'll discuss. Meaning, I think just like school is happening, it's done differently, right? So if uh, first First things first is always what is happening in the local community. If there's a lot of COVID-19 cases, a lot of COVID-19 cases, it is likely, uh, you know, the probability of someone bringing in COVID into an indoors area is much higher, right? If the prevalence rate is more than 5%, I mean, you're, you're, the odds of someone bringing in COVID into a building is going to be high versus, say, during the summer times, when COVID cases in a variety of communities were around 1%. Those were reasonable odds to kind of phase in. The first thing I would say to all our congregational leaders is, what's the pulse of the community? There's a lot of cases taking a, a, a greater risk of potentially having someone come into the building with COVID. Right. So I say all this because I would say the default to this is potentially a virtual service in a beautiful way that can be conducted to allow people to still enjoy Christmas uh, worship services. Now, if the community spread comes down in a few weeks, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going with both kind of conversations, and phasing in is allowed to some extent, now this is going to be key, right? Even if you have a really big building, like say it's the size of Peabody Hall uh, here at Hopkins, which is big for those who have not been in. Keep in mind that even if you can bring in people, and even if those individuals can be physically distant, 
every time you bring in an individual, it does bring in an opportunity, potentially, if they have COVID. So I would 100% talk out loud about what is a cap to how many people can come in for an hour. And we, this is where we, you know, we, we always say, even if it's a big space, indoors, that air is going to be recirculated. So it's not that, you know, that person, even though they're pretty far away, the breath someone is breathing out 50 feet away will still make its way over that person 50 feet away, given time. So that, that's our concern there. So discuss a kind of a cap. If there's state guidelines and so forth, I would strongly consider them. This is all being done for safety purposes. The other part is time. Uh, you know, the church I attend, Christmas services are rather long. Um, and so if they are still long, you know, you, you, you abide by the faith. But this is where I would recommend maybe there's a hybrid approach with virtual and in-person to some extent. But my biggest concern is people coming indoors, the risk of potentially bringing in COVID is going to depend on how many people for how long of a time and how much is it spreading in the community. Right? The higher it is in the community, the higher likelihood one of your uh, uh, congregational members potentially may have it. Face masks, physical distancing, hand hygiene, all of these work, don't get me wrong. Just that in an indoor area, over time, those interventions, uh, the effect of them may get lost. It's still wearing a face mask, some air still comes out. Being indoors, you know, with a long period of time, that air may kind of cluster together and accumulate across the aisles and so forth. So those are the parts that I would emphasize. And Kimberly and I and others in our team, we are, are always available to you all to hold one-on-one -on -one kind of congregational conversation. Uh, Kimberly, you can uh, let the, our listeners know a little bit more if they'd like to pursue this, how to, con uh, how to reach us. But we've done this from, you know, uh, Ramadan back in the spring with our local Islamic faith leaders. We've done it with our Jewish leaders with um, their holy holidays that just passed. And, of course, now we are preparing with our Christian leaders uh, for Christmas. So if you guys have questions, please email us. I'm giving a kind of a general response, but more I'm giving you all what to think about because I'm hoping hoping you all want to spread the spirit of the season and the faith without spreading the virus. And so to have an indoor worship service, you really need to take into consideration what's happening in the community with spread, what is happening in regards to how many people you like to have in the building, and for how long of a time. Every hour and one, your chances will continue increasing because of indoor air circulation. So, Kimberly, that's how I'll leave it. Do you want to tell our listeners if, you know, if uh, uh, someone wants to hold a meeting with us, um, how to best contact us? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can email me or through the mgg at jhmi.edu. Um, just let us know about your interest, and uh, I'll schedule a call about 30 minutes with with your team or just individually and Dr. G and uh, provide you with, um, you know, we just go over some of the CDC recommendations and any additional thoughts. Um, I'm happy to do so. So just uh, send an email or, again, you can call me at the 410-550-1118. So thank you, Dr. G. So the next ones are really more um, uh, factor fiction. The use of copper 
to battle COVID-19 virus, um, particularly on surfaces. Um, is there any truth to that? So there is truth to some extent. There are certain metals that the virus won't appreciate, won't enjoy, may not survive long enough on there. And I say this because copper in certain fragments is often used because of its kind of properties towards microbes, uh, especially on a nanoparticle uh, level, sometimes or even in socks, the socks, in order to help with regards to kind of like the odors of bacteria emit and so forth. So there is truth to it, um, but I, I will say I, the reason why I bring this up is there's definitely certain things that help with regards to um, killing the virus, but those will never be as your actual disinfectants, right, the hand sanitizer, the cleaning materials, and so forth. So I, I wouldn't rush out to go stock up on copper. Um, you know, if, if you have some copper products, that's, that's fair. But, you know, don't, don't, I say this because I don't want it to be a replacement for products that are actual disinfectants, right? Copper is not listed as a disinfectant. It's just an unstable environment for um, the virus. I, I, I would say it's like fire. Fire kills the virus, but I don't want you all to blow towards your surfaces. No, there's, there's much more effective ways with disinfectants and cleaning materials to help out. So hopefully, hopefully that helps, Kimberly. Thank you. And so actually, I'll be honest, the next one actually came from uh, one of my family members. Um, we're going to see another shutdown in coming days to prevent the spread. What do you think? Yeah, so I um right. So the ability to stop the spread of this virus relies on us not spreading the virus. Right? And I know these have been hygienic interventions that have been emphasized greatly uh, since March. Uh, March eleventh when the World Health Organization declared this day um, uh, a pandemic. So there's a few things I would do want to say. So first, these hygienic interventions stopped two prior coronaviruses, right? 2003, we had SARS-CoV, ravaging Southeast Asia. In 2013, we had MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, ravaged the Middle East. That's where it got its name. Both those viruses we don't speak of. Both those viruses went away without a vaccine, without a cure. What both areas did, especially in Southeast Asia in 2004 and 5, is they went through really strict lockdown. They ended up working to put that away. Now, I say this because Southeast Asia, especially countries like Taiwan, never had a mandated lockdown uh, in order to stop the spread of the virus, SARS-CoV-2, the one we're dealing with now. I say this because, you know, one of their citizens, uh, the idiom they use translates into English of, fool me once, okay, shame on me, Fool me twice. I'm sorry. Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. So they were prepared, right? This time around with SARS-CoV-2, face mask compliance, staying home, businesses down. They all knew, hey, let's do this now so we can emerge later victoriously. And they went 200 days without a single case. So I do think lockdown work. I think it's more of the messaging that needs to be taken into consideration and an emphasis that there is light at the end of the tunnel. 
right? That's what I think is important, right? We're all team members, right? We're all in this together, right? If you've ever played sports and your coach wanted you to do one more sprint after you're exhausted and tired and your muscles are aching, you do it if everyone on the team gets together and says, let's go, we can do this, we'll, we'll be stronger afterwards together. And so my thoughts on the lockdown is it's one thing for a government official to kind of just say, let's do this, right? You're going to get a lot of people upset. you you, you got to work out with what they need, what their concerns are. The stopping the spread of this virus is a, you know, it's hard to not find someone who doesn't agree that it's important. But for some people, it's hard to see that as a, the top priority when they are struggling economically or struggling mentally. So no one's going to say, hey, I don't want to catch this virus. I agree with you. It's important to not, not spread it. It's also going to be important to recognize what are going to be their barriers from committing to this. So, Kimberly, my long-winded answer to this is I do think a lockdown is coming. I agree. My thoughts on it is I, I think government officials are kind of forced into it in a sense of, you know, there isn't another strategy really to stop the spread. But in the same time, there, really, there is another way to discuss this where really you want to get all the community leaders together uh, and virtually and, and just, you know, come up with a plan that unifies us all together. The one beautiful thing that I've always appreciated about this country, and I know it may not felt like this uh, past times and so forth, but we do come together for a greater good. We've done, you know, from walking away victoriously and, and wars back from the American Revolution to 9-11, we do come together. And right now we need this more than ever. So what I would say is if a lockdown is done locally or statewide or nationally, let's pull together, right? Let's pull together because the stories I shared earlier today, earlier on this call, those are so heartbreaking. And this is what every doctor and nurse is dealing with. So is every family member. Every time we have someone who gets lost, those families get hit hard. And now they're left. I wonder what I could have been doing differently. So that's my answer, Kimberly, to hopefully pull everyone together. We're honestly in the fourth quarter, and I say this because, and we'll get into these questions about the vaccine. The vaccine gives us an end in sight, gives us light at the end of the tunnel. We're back in March when we were seeing this, no end in sight. It's hard to know what, how long to do this for. But now we do know that the fourth quarter we're in the fourth quarter, everyone. Over to you, Kimberly. That's a, a great segue to the next um, few questions regarding the vaccine. Um, see, I, I set you up, Kimberly. You see <laughs> you that? We, we've done this so, the, the, the Kimberly and Dr. G show, we, we've got this. Right. <laughs> um, so the first one, again, is uh, whether to clarify if there's any truth or not. Side effects of the vaccine will not appear until two years later. So, well, so there is, overall, that, that question is more myth for a couple reasons. One is um, this, this vaccine, these many vaccines, many vaccines, there's 12 that will likely get approved in 2021. None of them have even been around for more than a year, right? So we don't know this two-year side effects, and it's hard to even predict two years down the road what they may or may not do as a side effect. You can say that with a bit of confidence because the majority of these vaccines, the majority use old vaccine technology, vaccine technology that dates back to Dr. Salk's 
vaccine with polio, right? So then we know there's no real side effects two years later. The majority of the side effects are usually felt immediately. And we do know that with Pfizer's and Moderna, the two vaccines that we are likely to get FDA approval for both of them this month. Now, my excitement for both of them and my caution is, the caution I say this is because it is a new technology. This type of vaccine technology will be the first time available ever to the public. With that said, and I know that might sound scary, and I agree, uh, you know, new news always scary. When I bought my first iPhone, I was a little scared of it too. Um, but this vaccine technology is likely to be the breakthrough we've always needed in order to create things like an HIV vaccine and vaccines for almost every known virus known to man. That would be ideal because it also gives us the ability to do vaccine in a much efficient time manner as opposed to the usual 10 years. Now, the side effects for Pfizer Moderna that people mostly feel is a bad muscle ache. Well, you've seen that with the flu. And sometimes a low-grade fear afterwards. And for reason for that, don't forget the vaccine's job is to stimulate your immune system. For some, that becomes a little overstimulated where you feel groggy. You don't have the virus. You don't have the illness. You just have an overreactive immune system. Usually it goes away in a couple of days. So two years down the road, Kimberly, we don't know the answer to that yet. I can tell you with the older vaccine technology used, to make a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, we haven't seen side effects two years later. The newer vaccine technology, it's hard to say, but we do know there are side effects usually felt uh, in the immediate sense. And so that has been well documented. It doesn't occur often that one in 10 feel that muscle ache and so forth, but it's worth at least being aware of. So Kimberly, back over to you. Thanks, Dr. G. Um, and this next one, um I, I kind of followed up and did some research on this, but for contract tracing purposes, a tracking device will be in the vaccine, um, in which I had followed up and saw a story about syringes to have trackers on the outside. Um, what have you heard? What do you know? Right. So there are tracking devices. Well, there's ability to track a vaccine when it's given just like any other medication that's given from a healthcare professional. So if you're ever in a hospital, for instance, every medication, a nurse gets that kind of, kind of like a scanner um, when you go and check out a Target or a Walmart. Scans to make sure we know that that device is being checked out. That's what we do with medications, and that's what we do with vaccines. That is a medication. We scan it to make sure we know it is being given. So there's tracking abilities, fashion, no different to the TV you may have just bought uh, at Costco. That's being that's tracked. Once you bought it, we know whose house is, it, it is in, or at least we know who the buyer is. Now, in the actual chemical makeup of the vaccine, in the formula and everything, there is no tracking device in there. And by the way, I love these questions because we do want to give peace of mind to our listeners where we do acknowledge that misconceptions and misinformation does emerge out in a time like this. And so, you know, I, I stand by the science. I, I stand by the human that have put this together to get us out of this pandemic. There is not a tracking device that will be inserted in us. The usual tracking, just like a TV being bought at Costco with a zap of the scanner, that does occur with medications given, such as a vaccine. 
So hopefully that helped, Kimberly. Kimberly? Yes, thank you. I oh. did it again. I oh. haven't had coffee today. Oh, it's okay, so. Kimberly. Listeners, if you hear Kimberly, please send some Starbucks. <laughs> um, so yes, thank you for the clarification on that. Um, so the next one, um, and I think it's an excellent uh, question, and particularly after I, I think I, I saw something come through from Biden about wearing a mask 100 days or so, something like that. But after receiving the vaccine, will we still need to wear a mask, social distance, and isolate? Great, great question. And the answer may not be what we want to hear immediately, but the answer is still yes for this reason. Depending on the vaccine that we get, so vaccines are interesting because all will do, the main purpose of the vaccine overall is to protect that individual from developing severe disease from the infection. And when I say that, the most ideal vaccine will stop the transmission. We can't pass it on from one person to another. That would be great. Last time we did that, we created a vaccine where we couldn't caused transmission, and we ended up doing away with the virus altogether, was smallpox. But smallpox had a very unique feature to it where the only animal smallpox could survive in was human. Coronaviruses can go into other animals, as we learned and told and so forth. So some of the vaccines' goal, even if they, like, stop the transmission, may not be able to do just that. Like the AstraZeneca, for instance, our job was not to help with a vaccine to keep you from getting the virus, but we were focused on, can we allow your immune system to respond to it where you don't feel a symptom, or if you do, kind of like a mild, very mild, bad cold. So I, the reason why I say this is some of the vaccines may not stop transmission, so we'll probably still see face masking and physical distancing still aplenty, uh, even after the vaccines are being given, until a good portion of the population has received it, and then we can begin to ease them out. Now, I'll say this, because once the vaccines do begin to roll out, what may happen is some relaxations around public gatherings, even though face masking and physical distancing will still be implemented. So, yes, so I would still say for the foreseeable future, we will likely need the face masks and physical distancing. So as the vaccines begin to come into the population, certain social restrictions will likely be eased. And at the same time, you can take confidence, especially if you receive the vaccine, that what? if I get it, I should still be okay. It's either the vaccine is helping you to not catch it, or if you do, your symptoms will not be life-threatening. That's key. I mean, if we can convert this coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, to be no lethal, than its cousins that are all the coronaviruses that cause the common cold, we can all go back to a normal life, right? That's what we want. The, right? That, I'm not sure if you, uh, our listeners knew that. The majority of coronaviruses cause nothing more than a runny nose. Yeah. So if we can revert this coronavirus back to those cousins, then that's a win. So back over to you, Kimberly. So those I'm looking are the questions that we've received, um, fantastic questions. I thank you so much um, for submitting those. Um, before we wrap up, Dr. G, do you have any 
closing comments or thoughts as we enter the weekend and prepare yeah. next week? So a couple of closing thoughts. So first of all, uh, and Kimberly reminded me, uh, Kimberly and I during these calls will message one another just to keep us uh, updated for next last week, uh, next calls. And Kimberly will give you all more insight into this. Next week we have an amazing COVID-19 support group. They'll come and talk. Kimberly will weigh in a little bit more on that. Um, but the other part is we are definitely going to be inviting our chaplain services from Paula Teague to William Johnson to come and talk about how to prepare for your dignity in case you go become hospitalized. But kind of a unique version of that in regards to, you know, maybe identifying one surrogate individual is not enough. And I can say this speaking from my own experience this week. But this is what I want to leave the listeners. It's the same way I began the call. We have an ending in sight. We have a timeline that is coming upon us. And that's fantastic. I mean, for those, going back to a sports analogy, either if you played or watched sports, or maybe you don't like sports, so we'll give an orchestra analogy. Or, or I'm sorry, we'll give a theater one. We're in the last act. We're in the last quarter. That's great, right? Because if we know there's an ending, then we can definitely find extra courage to keep following these hygienic intervention guidelines until then. And if you need at all, you know, how to reignite that passion, this is where I really love you listeners a lot. Turn to one another. You know, Kimberly and I are here. We'll connect and so forth. We'll, you know, connect with your own community, connect with your family. There is an ending in sight, and that should allow us to take a breath of fresh air, even if that breath of air fits through a face mask. So I say this because we're getting there. There's light at the end of the tunnel. You all have been helpful and probably have saved more lives than any lives I could have by promoting these messages. Get your community motivated. We're almost there. We are almost there. That's it. Those are the closing words I want to leave with. And so, Kimberly, I turn it over to you to thoroughly tell us about next week and then turn it over to our chaplain services. I'm going to jump off unless you tell me there's a quick question that came in. Nope. You take care of our patients. So thank you so much, Dr. G. We appreciate the information that you shared today. Thank Be you so much. And thank you, listeners. Thank you. So before I turn this over to Reverend Teague, I want to remind everyone again about our next call scheduled for Friday, December 11th at 11 a.m. Um, as uh, we mentioned earlier, we have two speakers, Drs. Joe Bienvenue and Kate McFarland, who will discuss the COVID support groups, um, post-COVID support groups. Please also remember that there are community calls that we typically have on Mondays at 5 p.m., uh, will not be held during the month of December, but we will reconvene in January, so more information to come on that. And now for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Teague will offer closing thoughts and a prayer. Hi, Kimberly. This is Paula. Can you hear me okay? Yes, thank you. Great. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to be with you all this on this Friday. Um, so let me just offer a couple thoughts and, and then a prayer. So I'm aware, as I think all of us are, that this is the time when the earth is turning toward more darkness. There's less daily sunlight. And we've been hearing consistently about this dark winter with the COVID virus. Um, I appreciate so much uh, Dr. G's words about being in the last quarter, the final lap. But we have a little ways to go. 
And we know that in this dark winter that we are challenged, um, all of us, but we also know that our black and brown brothers and sisters especially continue their struggle with systemic racism, which impacts them more with the virus and the economic downturn. With all of us, it's easy to be discouraged. So I have two thoughts about this. The first is that all of us have our breaking point. And if you're feeling acute discouragement, please ask for help, a listening ear, reach out. This is not the time to minimize or make light of this difficult time. It's really normal for this to get to us. And the second thought is to continue to ask what grounds you today. What is your anecdote to feeling this darkness? Resilience is feeling that you have the reserves to meet the challenge. And what do you need to keep filling the tank to meet this time, to get through this last quarter? So let us pray. Dear God of many names, God of comfort, God of wisdom, God of courage, you are the one who walks with us through the shadow of death, who provides a rod and a staff to comfort us, a rod and a staff, tools, to make us more able to meet the steep path, the rocky passages in our lives. Help us to see the rod and the staff and the tools that you provide us to sustain us. You're the God who tells us that when we are in need of comfort, we must remember that we are not alone. You are the God of the Hebrew text from Exodus, which says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. You are the God who provides us with community and extension of your presence. Help us to stop when we are weary and rest a moment in the promise of presence. Help us to reach out when we need to feel your company through the spirit of those in communion with you. These are hard days now and ahead. Let us take each day as it comes with grace and thanksgiving. Let us remember to be grateful when we can meet the challenges and help us to reach out when we are in need. In deep gratitude for this community on this call today, we pray. Amen. And thank you everyone for joining us today. I hope you have a great weekend. Stay safe and be well. And hopefully you'll join us again next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.